Thank you for joining us today and a big thank you to our show sponsor, Amazing Jane Activewear, recommended as best leggings for running by Women's Fitness Magazine. Karen and I have been trialing their designs for a few months and we can happily recommend them. All designs are cut to skim, not cling, giving you confidence to look and feel great and focus on performance. So if you'd like to try Amazing Jane Activewear, please use our listeners special discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases at amazingjane.com. Amazing Jane ship around the world, so please check their website for details. Today we're discussing what's required to have a healthy heart for running, and we're going to be looking at the positives and negative impacts of running on heart health. And finally, we'll be sharing with you food and lifestyle interventions to help you have a healthy heart forever. Hello and welcome to She Runs, Eats, Performs, the podcast for female runners of all abilities. Please join Karen Campbell and Aileen Smith, nutritionists, friends and runners, who are here to help you translate sports nutritional science into easy to apply tips and plans, helping you enjoy peak running performance. And especially adding in the female factors every woman needs to know to be a healthy runner. The suggestions we make during this episode are for a guidance and advice only, and are not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. If you have any concerns regarding your health, please contact your healthcare professional for advice as soon as possible. If you'd like help from Karen and Ailey to design a personalized sports nutrition plan for your running, please contact them at Runners Health Hub. Hi everybody, welcome. I'm Aileen and I'm here with Karen as always. So how are you today, Karen? Yes, I'm good. Thank you, Aileen. I've had a lovely morning, relaxing morning. So now I'm ready to um, to record. Lovely. Um, Brilliant. <laughs> okay, so before we, we introduce the topic for today, um, as always, uh, we take an opportunity to share something personal with you, uh, either about our nutrition or our running. So Karen, I've got a question for you today. Uh, and it is, do you have a special uh, running book, be it a biography, an autobiography, a running cookbook, or, or even a textbook, or perhaps a novel about a runner? Is there something that you would share with us as being a favourite? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I've got quite a lot of different books, probably in all of those different formats, Aileen. But I think um, most people will be aware that I'm a big fan of Scott Durek, the endurance runner. And uh, my favourite book, I have to say, is definitely his autobiography, which is called Eat and Run. Um, and I think I I like it and it's my favourite for many reasons. One is because um, I find his personal story really, really inspiring. Um, But what I also like about his book is that he ends every chapter with a recipe and he's vegan. So many, many of his, sorry, Aileen, sorry, did did you try to speak there? No, no. (laughs) It must have been an echo, so I'm going to carry on. So, yeah, so he's he's vegan. So lots of his recipes are are quite exotic and... um, uh, but yet he still manages to keep them quite simple and easy to make, which is up my street. And I have, I have to say that uh, lots of them he, he makes quite portable because he tends to use them as his nourishment during his ultra distance training runs and events. So so definitely my favourite. But how about you, Aileen? Do, do you have a favourite running book or, or maybe a magazine? Um, well, I think if I think about books, my, my first um, book that I ever read about running was uh, a book called Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. And um, actually, I think I read it on a plane journey. I seem to remember sort of avidly reading it um, while I was maybe crossing the Atlantic. It was a long haul flight anyway. And it, it's a true story. And it, it starts with uh, the author trying to find ways of solving a, a very painful foot injury. And he, he tries all the usual treatments and nothing works. And he's on the verge of almost having to give up running, which is, you know, really uh, terrible thing for a runner to have to contemplate uh, and then he reads an article about a Mexican tribe and I think they're called the Tara Humara yeah. and um, and they are prolific runners I don't know whether you've heard of them Karen oh, um, yes you've got that book have you 
you indeed yes I've read it as well so it's an excellent book yeah yeah so it's um it's just really inspiring and and it's a few years since I've read it now and it's sort of um I think it's probably one I need to get off the bookshelf and enjoy again um yeah it's just really really interesting and uh just yeah Yeah. it is a really good book and I think the same author then went to Japan and ran with the um elite runners over there as well the elite distance runners I think they're all um ex-college or or maybe they're they're still college runners um and it's it's in Japan the college runners are really really fast and really dedicated and I've got a feeling he goes across and runs with them as well either that's another author but that's another good book yeah all right brilliant look for that one yeah okay so let's uh let's move on and introduce the the topic for today which is focusing on a healthy heart for running uh, and a healthy hearts definitely required for improving our running and overall running performance um, but the question I suppose we're posing today is does running have any negative effects on our heart and, and I think this is a really interesting question so what we're going to be looking at today is uh, the positive and negative effects of running on heart health are there any risk factors for heart dysfunction? And then finally, looking at nutrition and lifestyle to support a healthy heart. So, so Karen, before we, we look into the effects of running on heart health, um, I think it'd be really helpful if you could just give us a little refresher on how the heart works. And I wonder how many of us can remember this from our school days and our um, O-level biology yeah, absolutely, Aileen. I have to say you're showing your age speaking about all levels rather than GCSEs. And I, I know I still do that on the odd occasion as well, but my daughter always corrects me. But yes, we're going back to the 80s, uh, definitely speaking about all levels. But um, anyway, yeah, let's have a, a, a little revision of the heart and how it works. But I won't dwell on this too much. Um, and to put it simply, really, the heart is a large muscle divided into four chambers. So you've got the left and right atrium and the left and right ventricle and in essence it's really a muscular pump that creates a pressure head that's needed to pump blood around the body and as many as, as many of you will probably remember arteries take blood away from the heart whilst the veins carry blood to the heart now the heart works in a repeating pattern of contraction and relaxation and this is known as the cardiac cycle and this repeating cycle is how blood pressure is meant as measured. So what I mean by that is that heart muscle contraction is the systolic reading um, of blood pressure and heart muscle relaxation is the diastolic reading of blood pressure. So for those of you who weren't sure what blood pressure was about, that's what it, what it is. It's the contraction and relaxation of the heart muscles in that cardiac cycle. Great, that's that's really helpful, Karen. Karen, really concise and uh, an easy to understand explanation of how the heart works. Um, but I suppose we can't really speak about the heart without bringing the lungs in, as they work in a sort of a coupled unit with the heart, and that's known as the cardiopulmonary pulmonary system. Um, so the primary function of, of that system is to deliver adequate oxygen. Um, to the heart and remove uh, remove waste um, in the form of, of carbon dioxide from the body tissues, and that's all via the circulatory system, which includes the heart. Uh, so to put this simply, um, this is a way of, of the um, system working as a unit to maintain um, oxygen and carbon dioxide uh, balance in the tissues. Um, so that's sort of the simple uh, biology. Um, so let's move on, Karen, to look at the positive and negative effects of running on heart health. And shall we start with the negative effects uh, first? And let's hope that the positives outweigh the negatives. So what can you tell us, Karen? Yes, absolutely, Aileen. I do think that the positive effects of running on heart health outweigh the negative impact. But I do think that it's also important for us not to ignore the fact that running could adversely affect the heart health. But I have to say this occurs in certain situations only. And one potential effect, but a fatal outcome actually, is what's known as sudden cardiac 
death. Now, this is clearly devastating, but I have to say it is very, very rare. So just bear that in mind. And it does seem to be associated with prolonged exercise at increased heart rate affecting an undiagnosed heart condition. So this undiagnosed heart condition could be linked to heart arrhythmias. So that's an abnormal heart rhythm. It could be linked to genetic cardiomyopathies. So that's wasting of the heart muscle. That's one example of a of a cardiomyopathy, but but cardiomyopathies tend to be genetic, um, and there are several ones. And then what's known as myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. So these are three um, known ones. But there are potentially other undiagnosed heart conditions as well that could lead to this sudden cardiac death, but just undiagnosed. Uh, and tragically, it has been found to be more prevalent in children than in adults, although it can occur in adults too. But I have to stress that it is very, very rare. Yeah, I mean, thank goodness it's rare, but it does tend to be the type of story that hits the newspapers, doesn't yeah. it? You know, you hear about some poor athlete that's, you know, collapsed at the end of a race or during a race. And, and then, it, you know, we, we, we sort of remember those stories, but as you say, you know, they are very rare. Um, and it could be, it could be associated with any type of exercise, um, not just running, you know, any kind of exercise where the heart rate is increased for prolonged periods. So um, yeah. that's just something to bear in mind. Um, but Karen, I've also heard of a condition called athlete's heart syndrome. So could you tell us a little bit more about that before we move on to the more positive outcomes of running on our hearts? Yeah, absolutely, Aileen. And this condition also tends to be associated with the prolonged exercise. So I'm speaking about individuals who maybe uh, run marathons and ultra marathon um, distances predominantly. And also, um, again, it is important to stress that this syndrome is completely different from any pathological structural heart adaptations caused by, say, hypertension or the cardiomyopathy that I was speaking about earlier. So the syndrome is completely different. And, and just before we speak about the syndrome, I just want to mention athlete's heart first. Now, now athlete's heart is a positive state and it's characterized by significant increase in heart rate, cardiac output and stroke volume, um, just to name a few. And um, and all of this, when you've got a, a, a good athlete's heart, can be maintained over several hours, but only when the um, the athlete is endurance trained. So it's an endurance trained heart. Um, and the long term benefits of these positive adaptations include increased left and right ventricular volume so they can take in um, more blood, um, increased left ventricular wall thickness and increased heart muscle mass. So and functionally, these adaptations result in approximately five to six times greater cardiac output and also a reduced resting heart rate. So it's going to be really supportive for health, but also for a runner and, perf and performance. But it must be stressed here that the development of an athlete's heart does require intensive endurance training. So it's not just going to happen um, over a short period of time just by increasing your exercise a little bit. This is um, over long periods of time. Right, so the recreational runner's probably not going to develop a positive athlete's heart. Is that what you're saying? It's more the yeah, I'm not saying that they can't, but it would be over a long period of time, and it would have to be quite intensive um, um, training to to achieve that. Hmm. Anyway, it's, it's good to know that if that's what you're doing, you're going to get some positive benefits. Yeah. Um, so, Karen, I just wanted to explain stroke volume quickly, as people might not have heard of that. So um, in a nutshell, it's the volume of blood in, in millilitres that are ejected from each ventricle uh, due to the contraction of the heart muscle and that compresses those ventricles. So, I mean, that's a very simple explanation. I'm sure it's much more complicated than that in reality, but 
hopefully that just gives people an understanding of it. Um, so, so moving on, Karen, we, we talked about this athlete heart syndrome. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, this athlete's heart syndrome is thought to be most prevalent in middle-aged amateur long-distance runners, um, much more prevalent than in young professional athletes, although it can occur in in young athletes as well. Um, But it also does appear to be more prevalent in men um, than women, um, which is interesting. Now, it's thought that many people... And I think this is probably true. Many people tend to take up distance running in midlife, generally as a new challenge or in a bid to become fit and healthy. So just making that lifestyle change. And so with this change from a more sedentary lifestyle comes a real enthusiasm for high training volumes and intensities. And this requires that increased cardiac output over several hours if they're doing sort of more the endurance long distance uh, running. And this increased exercise load can result in a high degree of stress on the heart, as well as the heart blood vessels and the electrical conduction. So that internal pacemaker system. And it's thought that... um, It's thought that this will have the potential to lead to functional and structural maladaptations because there's not the adequate um, training that we were speaking about earlier and that that can then lead to heart injury and potentially fibrosis, so scarring of the heart, especially in this subgroup of the more prone middle-aged amateur runners who are mostly inadequately trained. You know, I'm not saying this is going to happen to every amateur runner because if you're training well, like I was saying earlier, Aileen, it is thought that the amateur runner can achieve these these athlete heart benefits, but a lot of people don't train appropriately. And actually, it's thought that heavy exercise leads to a demand for oxygen that's 15 to 25 times greater than the demands for it at rest. So that's really significant if you're moving from a more sedentary lifestyle and all of a sudden you're you're really enthusiastic and you're doing these high training volumes and intensities. Mm, Yeah, so I think what... To sum up what you're saying there, Karen, is that this subgroup of amateur runners, and, and I can really identify, you, you know that you know people that fall into this group, they mm-hmm. tend to do too much too soon rather than building up training gradually. Yeah. And if they did it more gradually, they'd encourage positive cardiac adaptations. Um, and doing, doing it in that way is thought to um, sort of increase the, um, the risk of this um, myocardial heart muscle injury and scarring so I suppose the message is you know if you're if you're a sort of a beginner runner you have to build up slowly and and not just hair around doing it really exactly over the top so yeah good good advice there I think it's really interesting yeah, absolutely. You know, we're speaking about um, the fact that, that that they do too much too soon. But as always, there is always debate around this. The, the research, you know, does does this lead to the the maladaptation? So, for example, there was a study completed in recent years, and it was looking at markers of heart muscle damage of runners during and immediately after a marathon distance run. Now, this study found that um, the elevated marker seen return to normal levels within a 24 to 48 hour period and that seemed to occur without any myocardial degeneration um so you know it's as always more research needs to be done to confirm the effects of running on the heart especially in this subgroup of predominantly middle-aged male amateur runners so um but but I do think that we must remember that as we get older we are naturally at an increased risk of adverse cardiac events so age is a factor that needs to be taken into consideration when they're when anyone's making the conclusions from from any studies carried out 
Okay, so thanks for that, Karen. So let's now um, flip it around and focus on the more positive effects of yes. heart health. And uh, thankfully, there are many. Um, mm. we, we know it's widely known and accepted that regular and moderate physical activity does have beneficial effects on heart health. Um, there was a, a Harvard study that suggested that optimal cardiac heart health um, occurs from exercise using approximately 300 to 400 units of energy per day. So we, we're talking about calories there. Um, but it's also thought as little as around 15 minutes of physical activity a day could also have significant preventative effects towards cardiovascular events. So, um, you know, we're also thinking about things like diabetes, cancer and other chronic health conditions. So, um, you know, as little as 15 minutes of activity a day can help prolong life expectancy. Um, so, you know, that's common. I think that's fairly common knowledge, mm-hmm. it, really. Um, but I was just wondering, Karen, if you can tell us any of the other positive effects of physical activity on heart health. Yes, well, um, you know, although I mentioned earlier that the development of the athlete's heart requires intensive endurance training, training, um, like I also said, it is thought that well-trained amateur runners could attain this as well. And um, there was another study that was carried out recently looking at males they were sort of between the ages of 25 and 35 years old, so fairly young. And they were looking at these males training for a marathon over a 12-month period. Now, the results here showed that left and right ventricular mass increased progressively with the training. So markers for the for the ventricular mass were obtained at the start of the study. Then they looked at them at three months, six months, nine months, and then at the end of the study at 12 months. And this, um, they found that with the training, ventricular mass could reach levels similar to elite athletes. So, you know, in answer to your question earlier, Aileen, it, it, it could occur. And I think that's pretty impressive as long as the appropriate training is, is in place over a period of time, then an amateur athlete can reach quite good levels. Excellent. Yes. And also, um, you know, Aileen, you were saying that it's been found that regular physical exercise has beneficial effects on the heart. And this also includes the damaging effects of a heart attack on heart muscle. So it's thought that three to five consecutive days of moderate aerobic exercise significantly protects against heart attack induced damage to the heart muscle. So what this is saying is that um, if you are physically active, but still, unfortunately, and for whatever reason, suffer a heart attack, the long term damage to the heart muscle will be reduced. So and, and, and it's thought that this protective um, element to to the heart is linked to the exercise induced increase in antioxidant capacity. So this antioxidant capacity is the body's ability to remove the free radicals from the system that damage cells. And also it's thought that an increase in cardiac mitochondria, now we've spoken about mitochondria before, and that's sort of our cell energy powerhouses. And the more the 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 fitter we are, especially with aerobic activity, the more um, mitochondria we have, and this cardiac mitochondria are thought to play a part in this protective um, element from damaging the heart following a, following a heart attack. So, um, so those are some other um, protective and um, um, sort of positive effects of running on the heart. Aileen, have you got any other thoughts on physical activity and and heart health before we move on? Yeah, well, there was a couple of points that were just popping into my head while you were talking there, Karen. I mean, I think, you know, the interesting thing was the three to five consecutive days. And I was thinking about just generally, you know, we talk about regular um, exercise conditioning muscles, you know, so that you, your muscles start responding. And, and our heart is just a muscle, isn't it? So it's exactly. going to be exactly the same. And, and my other thought was, you know, as with everything, although we know that we're getting, you know, everybody's aging all the time, naturally, um, 
doing all of this good positive exercise, you know, we, we might not be able to prevent illnesses and disorders happening, but we can minimize the effects. So I think that was my positive message from that. Yes. Um, but I also thought it might be good just to um, mention something about arterial fib- fibrillation, um, which is a, a condition causing a, a sort of irregular and often abnormally fast heart rate. Um, this is increasingly viewed as a, a lifestyle disorder and tends to occur later in life. But there's quite strong evidence that suggests that middle-aged individuals who, reg- who regularly exercise have a lesser incidence of uh, arterial fibrillation at later in life. Um, so there are a few risk factors associated with this condition. Um, so hypertension, obesity and um, obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and it's thought that exercise um, is, is helping to control these risk factors. So, again, you know, the, the running that we do and, and exercise that we do to promote our health is, is going to help that. And, you know, we know that exercise also will prevent age related decline in that left ventricular compliance and that's going to help us maintain cardiac output um and then another couple of positive effects um to think about um heart health i was thinking about the modulation of the gene expression so you mentioned that a little bit earlier about you know some people are genetically predisposed to heart conditions so the the analogy um I was thinking of is that, you know, your genes sort of load the gun, but it's our lifestyle that pulls the the trigger. So, you know, the the analogy is that you might have a genetic predisposition, but if you manage your exercise and your body composition and your, um, you know, what you eat and drink, um, then you're not going to express those genes and you may not develop that heart condition that we talked about. So. Mm -hmm. That was the main things. And then just sort of the other one that's in my mind is the importance of optimal sleep health. Um, You know, we've talked about sleep being really important for all aspects of health. And um, and that's been mentioned a few times in previous episodes. Um, But particularly, it's going to be of help to heart health, too. So just remember that as part of the lifestyle, um, you know, how we look after ourselves. Absolutely. So I think that really, Aileen, the moral of this story for everyone is to keep on running. And that's sort of the moderate running to support heart health. And if you are a distance runner, then I think it would be important to build up your training gradually to ensure you reap the heart health benefits. Uh, Don't try to do too much too quickly, or you could find that it's detrimental to your heart health in the short, but also in the long term as well. Okay, so let's move on now, Karen, um, and think about some more of the risk factors that we sort of touched on earlier uh, that might uh, lead us to having suboptimal heart function. Um, mm. We've already mentioned a few. We talked. We mentioned obesity, age, hypertension. Uh, are there any other risk factors we should be thinking about? Yes, I think there are, are many risk factors, Aileen, of which some are within our control, but then there are others that are outside of our control. And thinking about some of the risk factors outside of our control, they include the age that we've been speaking about, so that middle age and older runner um, or older inv- individuals are at increased risk of cardiovascular um, issues. And then gender, like I was saying earlier, males do appear to be at increased risk of cardiovascular um, conditions. However, it, 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 interestingly, women are at increased risk of stroke. So just to bear that in mind. And also familial history. So if a parent and or a grandparent um, has suffered from any heart condition, then you could be at increased risk of developing the same or a similar condition. And then genetics may mean that we are predisposed to certain conditions. You know, like you were just saying, Aileen, our genes load the gun, but it's our lifestyles that pull the trigger. So we may be predisposed to a certain condition, but it's our lifestyles that will determine or could determine whether we develop the condition or not. 
And then infectious diseases, um, certain infections are known to weaken the heart, so weaken that muscle. And then um, ethnicity as well. So um, data from ethnic groups living in the UK, this is, um, it's, it's found that South Asian People from South Asian descent are more likely to develop coronary heart disease, um, more so than white Europeans, apparently. And also African or um, African Caribbean um, individuals or from their descent, descended from African or African Caribbean, are at higher risk of developing hypertension and suffering a stroke than other ethnic groups. And then um, Africans and also African Caribbeans, again, and South Asian um, people uh, are more likely to develop type 2 diabetes than the rest of the population. Although, and again, although genetics are thought to play a part, again, lifestyle choices are also suggested to be a factor in this. So so have these various ethnic groups changed sort of their, their lifestyles as they've been living in the UK? So Aileen, thinking about risk factors within our control, um, which ones would you would you suggest? Well, there is quite a lot, and you know we've probably talked about a lot of these in different episodes. But the you know mm-hmm. the top ones are you know what we eat and drink. Um, so you know if you think about your um, nutrition, if you if you're following a, a, a poor diet um, that's high in refined sugar and carbohydrates and processed foods and things like you know poor quality red meat, trans fats, you know low in foods that are low in fiber, maybe not eating mm-hmm. fruit and vegetables or enough oily fish, all of these kind of things um, are going to put you in a, a, you know, a, a bad place, really. Um, mm-hmm. Also thinking about inactivity. Now, I know as runners, we, we're very active, um, but sometimes people rely on just exercising and forget about activity. So we, we do tend to often have a very sedentary lifestyle so we've got to remember that we need to add in activity during the day and that's really going to help reduce those risk factors. Smoking is an obvious one Um, again you know it's surprising the number of people that still smoke but obviously if you are a smoker that is going to be a risk for heart and lung disease. Um, We mentioned uh, drinking earlier um, so thinking about you know are you drinking enough water? Um, could you modify your alcohol intake? Um, again, that can be a strain on the heart and the livers and the kidneys as they try to detoxify and excrete the toxins. Um, medication can also be a risk factor. Um, so for all the reasons that I've, I've already mentioned, so um, you know, having a medication review with your GP or medical practitioner regularly is positive. Um, and again, other things that we've talked about in previous uh, episodes, we've talked about um, being overweight and obesity, uh, which could lead to diabetes, which is also a risk factor. Um, the other um, sort of cardiovascular things that we've mentioned earlier, so hypertension, stroke, heart disease are obviously going to be a risk factor. But if you modulate your uh, lifestyle factors you're going to reduce your your uh, risk for those diseases so lots of different risk factors but I think you know there are quite a lot that you can do and you know that I've you know I've had family members that have suffered heart attacks and, and strokes too and and there's some really good public health um, messages out there to help people um, but I think it's all about getting ahead of the game and preventing it, really, isn't it, Karen? Absolutely, yes. Prevention is always better than cure. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So moving on to thinking about female risk factors, are there anything that we should um, think about there, Karen? Yeah, so thinking about the female factors, it, it, like I was saying earlier, females are thought to be um, l- l- at lower risk of cardiovascular disease besides men. However, they are still at risk, especially as they begin to age. Um, but 
But again, women are at greater risk of suffering a stroke besides men, especially once again, as they get older. So uh, as we keep saying, age is a huge factor in in much of this. And um, although women are at lower risk of cardiovascular disease than men, it is still the number one killer of women in the UK and in the USA. don't know about other countries, but the the stats that I I was able to um, get a hold of was looking at the UK and the USA. So it's still the number one killer for women. And it's it's the death rate is even higher than that from breast cancer, because we speak a lot about breast cancer and how that can affect women. Um, but but um, heart disease is, is still the number one. Um, that's so shocking I find absolutely absolutely and also like I was saying earlier that certain ethnic groups are at increased risk of cardiovascular disease and that includes those from South African and Asian origin so I have to say it it sounds quite depressing really doesn't it but but you know we are going to move on shortly to look at positive steps we can all take to help minimize the risk of, of any heart conditions and also I think we have to remember that as runners we are already taking steps to minimize this risk so that's a tick in the box for us isn't it especially if we are sort of the moderate runners or if we are distance runners who pay particular attention to our training and build it gradually so Let's move on to consider the nutrition and additional lifestyle changes um, we could make to further minimise our risk of cardiovascular disease. But uh, actually, Aileen, I'm thinking before we do that, shall we just take a quick advert break? Yeah, certainly. So this is the the moment in the episode where Karen and I take a minute just to talk to you about our work outside of the podcast. And uh, if you've been following us for a while, you'll know that one of the things we do is run an online program called Easy Nutrition for Healthy Runners. And um, it's all about helping uh, people who struggle with foundational everyday health fine-tune um that everyday health eating plan uh, alongside sports nutritional uh, principles to help maximize running performance and to minimize um, injury. Um, So thinking about how that relates to today, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about lifestyle factors and having the foundations in place will really, really help you. Um, So if, you know, you've been sort of uh, listening carefully and thinking, oh, maybe there's a few things I could do with, um, you know, improving upon and making sure I've got that good foundational help. This would definitely be a program that would help you. Um, it's a, sh- a short and sweet video program. Um, so you can complete it in 30 minutes a day over two weeks or equally take as long as you need. Um, so the, we have um, short 15 minute videos and an action step after each video so that you can put everything you need into place. Um, so we hope that that's of interest to you. If, if you'd like to find out more, check out our website, uh, runnershealthhub.com. Look at the top menu bar at the online program and uh, click on there and it'll tell you all about the program. And if you've got any questions about the program, email us at hello at Runners Health Hub and we'll be happy to help you. Great. Thanks very much, Aileen. So looking at uh, nutrition and lifestyle to support a healthy heart, when, we, when we're when we thinking about changes to support heart health, we, we really need to be considering the risk factors within our control and change them. So that there's certain ones that we can't change like age, like uh, gender, ethnicity. So we really need to be thinking about the factors that are within our control and adapting them. So ones we talked about earlier included the diet and nutrition, our weight, so body composition, uh, potentially stress um, and others. So so firstly, let's take a look at the dietary and nutritional changes that we could make to support our heart health. Now, one style of eating, some of you, many of you might have heard of it, um, and it's known to be really supportive to heart health is the Mediterranean diet. Um, now, the Mediterranean diet is considered a functional diet. Uh, with a, and I have to say there's an increasing amount of scientific evidence behind it that supports its beneficial eff- effects on health generally, really, as well as heart health. And um, interestingly, it, it it was at first recognised for its benefits as long ago as ancient Egyptian times. So, you know, it's it's 
um, traditionally, historically, it's always been seen as a, as a healthy lifestyle choice and diet choice. Since sort of coming into more recent times, since the 60s, uh, lots of studies have shown an association between the Mediterranean diet and a lower prevalence and incidence of cardiovascular disease. But also in other chronic diseases as well, including even cancer, the metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and also neurodegenerative diseases. So thinking about Parkinson's and um, MS and, and other neurodegenerative diseases. Now, the Mediterranean diet is one focused primarily on plant-based foods such as vegetables, fruits, the low glycemic index, whole grains, um, so the complex carbohydrates, legumes, so the um, the lentils, peas, beans, and also nuts, seeds, herbs, and spices. It is also rich in the essential fatty acids, such as from olive oil and from our fish and seafood, and, and they tend to feature frequently in a Mediterranean diet uh, food plan. And meat is present, but only in a few meals. So maybe a, a, in 10 meals in a month, it's not a daily um, intake. And um, sort of in the traditional way, it was it, red meat tended to only be found at, at fiestas and lamb was the preferred meat. So it's really interesting. I think that's kind of changed, but still minimizing the meat intake to about 10, 10 portions per month is seen as part of that Mediterranean um, style of eating. And then dairy products are consumed, but they're consumed in moderation, often from fresh cheese, um, and, and the milk tends to come from ewes or goats rather than cows. And also a little red wine is included in the Mediterranean diet, so that's a positive um, effect of it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a really popular um, way of eating. Um, I think it's something, because it has been, um, you know, as you say, maybe in the 70s and 80s, people started talking about the Mediterranean diet. And I don't know whether there's enough discussion about it now, thinking about it, Karen. You know, people talk yeah. about lots of other types of eating. And Mediterranean diet isn't really mentioned that much I don't think. Um, no, right. It's all about keto and paleo and these sort of things. Yeah. At the they seem to be the trend, don't they? Yeah, but I, I, it is a diet or a way a way of eating. I, I would call it more than a diet that I recommend to many of my clients. And um, you know, Karen, you've really summarised a lot of what you need to eat. Um, mm. So I think we could maybe talk about the types of choices within those types of foods. And and one of the things that I uh, read recently was um, about thinking about the Mediterranean diet as being mostly plant-based with a bit of fish or meat or animal protein on the side you know and I think that's mm -hmm. a really big principle to, to think about um, um, so let's just talk through some of the, the things that you people can think about choosing um, mm -hmm. so you, you mentioned olive oil so the, the recommendation would be to choose extra virgin olive oil and and use it liberally on uh, on your food. So you know on on salads, on vegetables, on cooking dishes, on cooked dishes. But you you don't tend to cook with the extra virgin oil. You actually would add it um, as an accompaniment liberally. You know, so um, use it in, in those dressings and enjoy it. Um, we talk a lot about getting your essential fatty acids, particularly from fish. So, you know, if it doesn't apply if you're vegetarian, but if you do eat fish, remember the, the small oily fish are the fish that you will get the best um, omega fatty acids from, the omega-3 fatty acids. So we use an acronym which is SMASHED. Um, so um, that is sardines, mackerel, anchovies, um, herring and salmon so it's really important that you choose the small fish because they're the ones that are going to be uh, less polluted as well um, mm. the big fish tend to take up pollutants from the seas so choose the small fish and they're readily available and um, have them two to three times a week um, as, a, as a minimum um, seafood is also um, 
part of the Mediterranean diet. I mean, you can imagine in these sort of countries, Italy, Spain, Portugal, mm. um, a lot of seafood around. Um, so using fresh and local seafood is great, but frozen is also perfectly acceptable. And you would avoid the farm fish and the farm seafood that might not be um, as uh, free from pollutants or antibiotics. So again, if you can use, know where your fish comes from, that would really help. Um, some some dairy is is acceptable, um, but the suggestion would be to select goats and sheep products over cows products. Um, you know, so again, I'm, I'm sort of being taken off to Greece when I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about the lovely cheese there, Karen. I'm holidays um, mm-hmm. and think about reducing milk consumption so a little bit of cheese and, and yogurt would be great um, and then again you know for the, uh, the meat eaters um, it's really important about where you get your meat from and um, select grass-fed grass-fed um, meat um, free-range organic meats are really important um, same with poultry and eat less often. So, you know, some of my clients would choose to have uh, meat-free days or maybe you would only have, um, you know, animal protein once a day. That might be an idea. Um, and, and aim to to eat sort of red meat maybe once a week or a couple of times a month. So just really minimise it. And if you do that, it allows you to choose really good quality. So you don't need to eat it every day, but you can eat really um, good quality, which might be a little bit more expensive if you select those. So that would be a sort of a, a general approach. Um, but what about the more plant-based foods, Karen? What would you suggest? Yes, well, thinking about fruits, I would say to be uh, thinking about selecting the more low glycemic fruits. So for just for the lower sugar content really so thinking about the berries the apples the pears um and you could include other other fruits as well but just just limited amounts um and i would say overall it's about keeping your your fruit intake to roughly about two portions a day um so a portion size being the equivalent of maybe a small to medium apple um but but still maintaining that fruit intake daily and regularly but just managing the amounts and then vegetables well it's about selecting um widely um trying to get fresh seasonal and also local produce whenever wherever you can and just um including the colors of the rainbow and um but also plenty of dark leafy greens as well and you know when i think about the colors of the rainbow i just remember my time living in um living in madrid and just going to well the markets were just full of color but even the way they displayed the fruit and vegetables in the supermarkets it just felt like this this rainbow of color as you went into the supermarkets and it was just wonderful um so and and what i would say is to select organic wherever possible uh, uh, that would be the the recommendation just to try and limit the amount of spraying um of pesticides and um herbicides and things that that are put onto fruit and vegetables and then thinking about the whole grains so thinking about the brown rice um the quinoa millet the legumes the beans peas lentils all of these wonderful plant-based foods because like we were saying at the beginning the Mediterranean diet is predominantly plant-based so these are good this is going to be the core of what you're eating because you're going to get your protein from these as well as as carbohydrates and then the nuts and seeds so including all the nuts and seeds um managing portion size for um, body composition but including them every day and then I, I mentioned earlier that wine is uh, permitted in the Mediterranean diet and, and it is recommended. And I think a lot of people are aware that a little red wine a day, so a glass of red wine per day is thought to be beneficial to the heart. Now, what I would say here is that we're not advocating you begin drinking a glass a day if you currently don't drink any alcohol. If you don't drink alcohol, that's absolutely fine. But if you currently tend to consume, say, several glasses of wine, 
online over the weekend for heart health, it may be more beneficial to change that to one glass every evening to support to support the the heart rather than sort of this more of a, 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 a binge is a strong word, but overindulgence at the weekends. Yeah, great advice, Karen. I think we've all sort of been on holiday in the Mediterranean and visited lovely markets and uh, enjoyed the seasonal food. So I think, um, you know, have that mindset when you're thinking about um, a Mediterranean approach. That would be my advice. Okay, but there is another um, food plan that has been um, researched and, and also a lot of people use it to support cardiovascular health and um, that's called the DASH diet and the DASH stands for dietary approaches to stop hypertension. Um, so it's very similar to the Mediterranean diet but there's a, a very specific focus on reducing salt and sodium intake and the, this research, um, the research into this diet has shown that a lower salt intake um, helps lower the blood pressure um, and that appears to be a direct correlation so there's been a lot of studies um, around this approach and um, it's been found that um, only um, 2,300 milligrams of sodium um, a diet a a diet containing only 2,300 milligrams of sodium um, per day could lower blood pressure and that an even lower level of 1,500 milligrams per day um, could further reduce blood pressure. So, it, you know, if, if somebody's, I mean, it's the kind of thing that if somebody came to me with that kind of diagnosis, that's the type of food plan that I would get them um, started on. And and usually it's not that difficult. It, it's people who, you know, maybe have had a highly processed um, food plan. Uh, you know, they've been eating a lot of ready meals and processed foods that, um, just by switching to home-cooked healthier foods and all the things that we've chosen can really help them significantly lower um, salt intake. And, and it's thought that um, salt intake can be as much as 4,200 milligrams per day in men and 3,300 milligrams per day in women. So, you know, it's quite high really. So you can imagine, you know, making that change in your food plan can make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say this is another style of, of eating that I use with many of my clients who have hypertensions and the results have been really good, really positive. So, um, so, so really it's about choosing the foods recommended for the Mediterranean diet, but always checking the food levels for the sodium content to ensure that you don't really exceed that 1,500 milligrams per day of, of sodium, ideally, but um, but definitely not exceeding the 2,500 milligrams per day. Now, I think this is a good principle to follow even if you don't currently suffer from hypertension because as we were saying earlier Ailey, prevention is always preferable to being cured from something so if you if you if you currently feel that you are taking in more than um 2500 um milliliters per day of sodium milligrams per day of sodium then maybe thinking about that and trying to reduce it down so, Aileen, I am conscious of time. So I was just thinking, shall we quickly discuss some lifestyle changes we could include to help protect our hearts as well as we've spoken about the food intakes? Um, would you, what recommendations um, would you give and do you give to your clients? Yeah, I think we might have touched on some of these earlier, Karen. Um, um, just the, the top three that are uh, springing to mind is if you're a smoker, do everything you can to reduce or stop smoking. Mm. Um, and I know there's a lot less people smoking today, and it is rare to see a run of smoke, but it does happen. And I, I do have a friend who, who it always shocks me that he lights up a cigarette in his running gear, but he does. Um, so, you know, there are people out there doing it. So if you do smoke, um, consider reducing um, the daily amount of cigarettes and, and with the name of stopping them completely over time. And um, we all know mm. that smoking you know is not good for heart health and lung health and um you know that again that there's a lot of public health messaging and help out there for you um if that's something that is a, a health challenge for you um the the other um 
things that we've already mentioned that limit the the alcohol and you've you've explained that quite nicely Karen so I I won't follow through on that then I also touched earlier on having a medication review um so I I don't know about you Karen but I find that um, again it's it shocks me from time to time you know I get a new client and they come with a huge list of medications and they never seem to review whether they need them or not and so I, I always say to people, you know, have you had an annual review with your GP? Do you need to take these? You, you, you know, it's not my job to make that assessment, but I think everybody, you know, needs to ask their GP, um, what am I taking these things for? Do I need them all? Um, can I reduce mm-hmm. them? Um, because, you know, they do place a burden on your physical um, body and the biological symptoms. So, um just worth checking out and that's what I would suggest so Karen is there any other lifestyle things that you would add to the list yes I would say wherever possible reduce stress you know I'm not going to go into detail here as we do discuss the effects of stress so often um but what I would say is sort of consider the stressors in your life and determine which ones are within your control therefore ones you could potentially reduce or remove so I'm thinking hear about your diet and we've spoken about ways of of improving your diet poor sleep how could you and we've got episodes on sleep so maybe have a a look at that and listen to those and also workload how much of a workload do you have could that be reduced in any way also uh, maintaining appropriate weight and body composition now regular exercise and the the dietary recommendations that we've already spoken about will really support this and then I would just say keep up the running you know what more can I say well done everybody you're 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 sort of helping yourself um remain healthy by just doing your running yeah absolutely and I I think you know that it always whenever we talk about these things that they're not always top of mind you know when we think about a a runner with we both think about our external body don't we? we don't think about what's going on with our organs uh, but it's good to know that um, we're, we're making such a positive uh, contribution towards our cardio um, health and um, yeah I think that's uh, it's been an interesting discussion today Karen so just um, as we round up would you give us our key takeaways from today's conversation yeah, sure, Aileen. So um, firstly, I would just say that the regular and moderate physical activity is really beneficial to heart health. And it is thought that as little as around 15 minutes of physical activity per day could have significant preventative effects towards cardiovascular events. So, for example, um, reducing the risk of heart attack. But it has to be acknowledged that running, so that long and intensive running, can be deleterious to health, especially in midlife if you're poorly trained and seems to be more prevalent in male runners. And there are many risk factors for cardiovascular disease, some of which are outside our control and others that are within our control. And I think it's really important for us to acknowledge and change or remove the risk factors within our control. So we've spoken about a few um, today, including diet, smoking and stress. And dietary changes to consider include following a Mediterranean style of eating and drinking and considering this alongside the, the, the DASH diet, which has that specific focus on reducing sodium intake. And lifestyle changes you could introduce as well include getting sufficient sleep consistently, stopping smoking if you do, um, and also reducing the stresses in your life. And then finally, I would just say keep on running. You know, you're already taking care of your heart by running regularly, but just to remember to maintain moderate levels of exercise or if you're an endurance runner, just ensuring you train appropriately. And, and maybe to ensure you are doing it pro- appropriately, it might be worth investing in a running coach who can personalise your training for you. And that would be it, Aileen. Brilliant. Thank you once again, Karen. That's been really a fascinating topic to discuss today. And remember, everyone, don't let nutrition be the limiting factor in your running performance. 
Well, this brings us to the end of another episode of She Runs, Eats, Performs, brought to you by Runners Health Hub, helping female runners to be fitter, faster and stronger. We really hope you've enjoyed listening and you'll join us again soon. In the meantime, we'd be so grateful if you check us out on iTunes and leave a review. And once again, thanks for listening and do let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Bye for now. We'd like to introduce you to our show sponsor, Amazing Jane Activewear for Women's Changing Bodies, recommended as best leggings for running by Women's Fitness Magazine. We think they have everything a female runner needs. First of all, they are high compression to support your legs and bum. They have a deep waistband so they stay up and they don't move about when you run. There's a handy left pocket for your phone and a zip pocket on the waistband, which is great for your cards or a key. They also have a hidden tracker pocket for storing a GPS tracking device, and this is a unique safety feature. All Amazing Jane designs, including tanks and tops, are cut to skim, not cling, giving you confidence to look and feel great and focus on performance. Karen and I have been trialing wearing their range for a few months, and we can happily recommend them. So if you'd like to try Amazing Jane Activewear, please use our listeners' special discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases at amazingjane.com. Amazing Jane ship around the world, so please check their website for details. Thanks again to Amazing Jane Activewear for being our show sponsor and for sharing discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases.